welcome to JBFC Podcast, the official podcast of the Jacob Burns Film Center and Media Arts Lab. I'm your host, Andrew Jupin, and this week we are joined by filmmaker Craig Tepper and Edgar Mitchell, a former astronaut, uh, now a entrepreneur, writer, philosopher, I guess you would maybe call yourself in a way. Uh, welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thank you. Edgar, I guess we'll start with you and space travel. I mean, it's such a rare treat to be able to talk to a, an astronaut. This is very... Uh, very cool for me. Um, so I guess start at the beginning, I guess. January 31st, 1971 is when you first uh, took off on the Apollo 14 mission, it was? Apollo 14 mission is correct. Uh, now, what was uh, the basis of the mission? What were you guys going to the moon to do? We were the first science experiment to go to the moon. Um, so we had the task of setting up uh, scientific equipment on the moon and doing a geology trek on the moon to collect data for the geologists uh, so that they could have samples, rocks and dirt and uh, and material from the moon in order to analyze the, uh, the landing site where we were, which was called the Fra Mauro region of, uh, of the moon. And so what was your specific responsibility as part of the crew? My responsibility was as lunar module pilot, <clears throat> I was responsible, primarily responsible for the lunar spacecraft and as a scientist, primarily responsible for the lunar science that we conducted on the moon. And my partner was Alan Shepard, who was <clears throat> the commander of the flight, um, <clears throat> which consisted of three of us, myself as lunar module pilot, Stuart Rusa as command module pilot, which was a vehicle that remained in orbit around the moon while we went down to the surface, and the commander, Alan Shepard, who uh, was essentially our boss. And so, I guess, take us through it. I mean, I'm so fascinated by this whole process. So <clears throat> you you open the doors and step out on the moon. Who 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 stepped out first? Well, the way the cockpit was laid out, the commander had to go out first mm -hmm. because the door opened in my direction. <laughs> he had to get out before I could get out. <clears throat> and uh, he went down. And then a few minutes later, I, I went down, down the ladder and uh, to the surface. And so you were, I believe they said, the sixth man to walk? I was the sixth person to walk on the moon. And you, you touched that foot down on, on soil. I mean, what, what is going through your head? What were you, Just, what were you feeling? Well, were you get scared? The job, to get the job done. Mm -hmm. That's what's going through, the, through my head. Mm -hmm. And we had a checklist on one arm and a watch on the other. And the checklist was the, the series of effort, uh, of tasks that we had laid out for us on that particular period. And uh, the watch was to keep us on time. And if we stayed, if we worked at it, we should be able to stay right on time because we had practiced this procedure many, many times in order to be able to do it smoothly on the moon. Mm -hmm. And so how much time approximately did you have before you this, had to get back? Period, this period uh, was a maximum of five hours. Okay. Um, so we had to be back in the spacecraft about four hours and 50 minutes make sure we didn't run out of oxygen before we closed the door. So it was an oxygen issue. That's what the timetable you're working yeah, with right. was we had, based we're upon. Consuming our oxygen and uh, <clears throat> consuming oxygen. Uh, and that was our limitation. And so how many times were you scheduled to go back and forth? Was it a one-time thing? Did you go out multiple times? Well, we had two, two periods of what we call extravehicular activity. The first period uh, was to set up the science station out in front, about 100 meters out in front of the spacecraft. Uh, and that was set up to, uh, with several uh, rec receivers, 
of particular experiments uh, collecting certain data, which was being uh, sent by telemetry back to Earth in real time. And then uh, <coughs> set up a seismometer, a series of little seismometers uh, to collect shock waves from the moon. And eventually uh, the lunar module itself would be crashed back onto the moon to create a moonquake as each one of the as each one of the spacecraft was. Uh, and so from each mission, we set up the seismometers and each spacecraft after the lunar module, after we finished using it and returned to the command module, then the lunar module was crashed onto the surface to create this moonquake. And how many days did this mission last? Well, the whole mission was nine days, three days to go out there, three days around the moon, three days to come home. And on the way home, I guess, is sort of the uh, one of the more important parts for you in, in your life. So what happened on the way back? Well, on the way back, since my major task on the mission was complete, uh, having been done all the work on the moon and coming home, I had a little less uh, uh, duty to do. I mean, I could enjoy myself a little more right. than the other guys. We did have experiments left to do, mm -hmm. but primarily they were Stuart, Stuart and Alan were doing that work, and I was somewhat observer. But I got to <clears throat> just experience the heavens and experience the spacecraft, and got to look, yeah, uh, got to look at the uh, uh, the heavens in a new way. And I have to set this up for us in the, talking about it, sure, <clears throat> because. We were flying in the plane of the ecliptic, of course, which is the plane that contains the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. But we were flying, we were perpendicular to it and rotating to keep thermal balance on the spacecraft. In other words, we were flying sideways, as it were, but rotating mm -hmm. uh, and to keep uh, balance on the spacecraft, thermal balance. And what that caused to have happen was every two minutes, because we were rotating once every two minutes, a picture of the Earth, the Moon, the Sun, and a 360-degree panorama of the heavens appeared in the spacecraft window. Now, because we were outside the atmosphere and in space, the heavens and the stars and the star systems were 10 times as bright and 10 times as numerous as you can ever see on Earth, even on the clearest night at the highest mountain. So that was a real wow. Uh, it, of course, with the new Hubble telescope pictures that we have on Earth, uh, it, it's that bright or even brighter. Mm -hmm. But uh, the powerful thing was for the first time to be able to see the heavens uh, like that and see the galaxies and the galactic clusters and the enormous amount of, of um, star systems that we on Earth here just don't get to see unless you're looking through a powerful telescope. And so how did this make you sort of reassess your thoughts about us and and who we are and what we're doing here? Well, a phenomenon took place not only with me, but most of the astronauts uh, had something similar to what I'm going to describe here. Uh, it made me start to think about <clears throat> our basic origins. It made me start to think about the deeper purpose of all of this. It made me stop start to think about the studies I had done in my doctoral program at MIT, studying star systems and the fact that uh, all matter that we see in the universe 
is created in star systems. The matter in our body, the matter in the spacecraft, the prototype molecules were created in star systems at some point in time. In other words, a simplistic way to say it is we're all stardust. But accompanying this, as I looked at it and marveled at it, was a sense of, okay, we're all one. It's all all together. Mm-hmm. And a sense of ecstasy and unity and oneness. And it was a, was a sense of ecstasy uh, that was totally inexplicable, uh, just overwhelmingly powerful. And this continued uh, each time I would look out the window and observe the heavens and feel this. And it made me um, think about our origins and made me think about our story of ourselves. And I realized that uh, our story of ourselves, as told by our science, our cosmology, of how do we get here, where are we going, what's this all about, was probably incomplete and perhaps flawed. And that the story of ourselves as told by our cultural cosmologies, normally rooted in religion, was archaic and perhaps flawed. And perhaps we needed uh, some more study on asking these very basic questions about the origin of the universe. How did we get here? Where are we going? What's it really all about? And this sense of ecstasy that uh, was permeating my feelings and while I was thinking all of this were just overwhelmingly powerful. And this continued uh, all the way home every time for the three days coming home when I would look out the window and uh, see this, these heavens and, and the way they were, this sense of ecstasy was just there. Uh, it's the exhilaration at the beauty of it. When I got back, I uh, didn't quite understand why all of this uh, mag- feeling of magnificence and joy with all of this. So I started digging in the science literature to find some explanation and couldn't find anything. And I dug into religious literature, and I couldn't find anything. So I turned to some of the paleontologists and anthropologists uh, at Rice University. And I told them, okay, I've had this type of experience. Let's see if you can help me find a name for it and and, and a record of this in in ancient times. Well, they came back a few weeks later. and said, well, we think we have something that relates to what you're talking about. And it comes out of the ancient Sanskrit, and it's called Salvakapa Samadhi. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, it means uh, that you see things as you see them with your eyes, uh, but you experience them emotionally with as ecstasy, as uh, joy, as unity, as part of one. And I said, well, that's, that seems to be the experience. And uh, subsequent to that, I started digging deeper from that. And I realized that in every culture, there's something akin to that experience back in the early beginnings. So it made me realize that undoubtedly, our religious uh, cosmologies, our story of ourselves, uh, originates in some type of experience like this that uh, joy at just being alive and being here and wonderment at the whole process. Now, before this all happened to you, I mean, you know, you're an astronaut, you're a man of science. Uh, How much uh, 
you know, faith in, in any kind of organized religion did you have before well, this, I, if any? Yes, I, I was raised as a Christian. I was mm -hmm. raised in a Christian religion and uh, <clears throat> accepted it uh, on face value for what it was. Mm -hmm. uh, I also, as a scientist, reserved judgment uh, and saying, okay, that's a, a story, mm -hmm. and that's what Christians believe about our story and about how we got here. But uh, in the final analysis, uh, we're going to have to validate or understand eventually uh, all how all that fits together, mm -hmm. make it make sense. Had this been talked about before with, with other astronauts? You said that other astronauts had experienced something well, like this. Since we were pretty early in this, mm -hmm. I mean, I was, and this was just the third flight to land on the moon. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> over the period of the next five flights, it landed on the moon and we subsequently we talked to all of the, the people uh, yes over the period of time they all acknowledged that they had a very powerful emotional experience upon seeing the universe from that perspective mm -hmm. and seeing the heavens and seeing the galaxies and seeing the galactic clusters that it was an overwhelmingly powerful experience now they didn't describe it exactly in the way I described it but it was something akin it was a, it was the notion of being overwhelmingly beautiful, being taken with, with uh, the magnificence of the whole thing, and the sense of oneness, and we all agreed, for example, that if we uh, could ever get our political system and our leaders to have summit meetings in space and look back at, at Earth and the heavens from that perspective, we'd probably have a different uh, political system. We'd mm -hmm. probably gauge ourselves and manage ourselves quite differently having had that experience. And we all agreed about that. Yeah, I can I can completely understand how, you know, that idea would certainly I mean that that experience would certainly change one's perspective right. on the grand scheme of things. Exactly. Um, which I think I think in a lot of way, and I don't know if you would care to speak on this at all, but just uh how, you know, a lot of people, myself included, think that it's uh, very unfortunate in in this country, uh the sort of um lack of support that you know space exploration gets nowadays you know i mean we just saw shuttles being retired and all this stuff and it's it's a real shame that we're at a point where we're so preoccupied with what's happening here uh on our planet that the the interest and passion that you know this country once was completely consumed with for space exploration is is depleted you know i wouldn't say well, all but I, gone but i will disagree with you that it mm -hmm. it uh we're we're at a hiatus. We're, we're at a down period. Mm -hmm. Well, one reason is that the shuttle spacecraft, which we were using, is an old spacecraft, and mm -hmm. they're a little bit dangerous. I mean, keeping them keeping them functional and serviceable and going into space is uh, getting a little problematic. Mm -hmm. Now, and I also invite the idea to think about that uh, when the Wright brothers flew the first flight in airplanes in the early 20th century, uh, in the first few years of the 20th century, uh, during the 1920s, by that time, we had a, a full-fledged airline system, private airline system. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Something like that seems to be happening in space, too. We have the private industry now wanting to go into space, wanting to uh, uh, take people to the space station, even one of the uh, one of the entrepreneurs wants to establish a 
a, a tourist trade in uh, in space and uh, perhaps even have a orbiting spacecraft that goes around the moon and comes back and let the people experience that all I think which is a good idea mm-hmm. the longer range plan well, let's put it in perspective the longer range plan is has to be uh, the fact that <clears throat> because our our sun is going to burn out in due course we're going to have to become universal citizens mm-hmm. because we're going to have to find another place or our descendants will we won't but our descendants will have to find another star system to be around and uh, that's already, we're already talking about that. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, we don't have the capability, nor do we have the spacecraft, uh, nor the type of propulsion systems or the guidance system or anything about space that <clears throat> that allows us to uh, attempt to do that. We've got a lot of development to do before we can even go explore the rest of our solar system, much less start to go beyond our solar system. But in due course, we must become universal citizens, uh, else we perish. Now, our major problem at this moment in time is the whole issue of sustainability, that uh, uh, since the beginning of the 20th century, uh, every measure, well, let's put it slightly differently, the Industrial Revolution did not really get going until the end of the 19th century with the great thinkers and the... uh, the scientists that <clears throat> came to be in the end of the twentieth nineteen end of the nineteenth century into the twenty into the twentieth century, with all the discoveries and everything that were being made, and the great uh, uh, scientists and technologists uh, starting to move, and uh, the explosion of the population, and it went exponential right at the end of the nineteenth century and into the twentieth century. In the beginning, at the end of the 19th century, we had 1.9 billion people on this planet, and we're approaching eight to nine billion people now, a hundred years later, which is a real explosion of our population, and the consumption of what we're consuming to keep that population going is uh, destroying our non-renewable resources, and even our renewable resources. Keeping up with that is becoming a real major problem. So we've got to rethink our whole issue of what it means to be alive on this planet and change our ways of going about it. Else we, to use the words, eat ourselves out of house and home. Mm-hmm. And it's a major problem. We, If we don't get uh, take this and do something with it, we will not make this century, the 21st century that we're in right now. We won't get through it without major, major cataclysm. Let's to backtrack again for a second. So... You come back to Earth and seek out all this advice from from all sorts of uh, different areas. Um, what did you wind up taking from all the information you were you were given? Well, there's another part of it that I need to add to my previous explanation, mm-hmm. and that's to go back 400 years and point out that uh, in the 1600s. The philosopher René Descartes published a paper with permission of the church that physicality, spirituality, body, mind belong to different realms of reality that did not interact. Now, that was accepted by the church, promulgated by the church, the Catholic church, and uh, 
the good part was it got the Spanish Inquisition off the backs of the intellectuals of the 16th century. They quit burning them at the stake for disagreeing with the church. I provided they stayed away from mind and consciousness as science, as subjects of science. Um, and so <clears throat> consciousness as a study in science was a no-no. It was not a permissible subject. <clears throat> and that continued for 400 years. But we're now starting to understand that consciousness is fundamental to the fact that we're on this planet and alive. And uh, thanks to uh, the great scientists at the end of the 19th century, and Max Planck, and Einstein, and Dirac, the whole, that whole group, <clears throat> and dis those discoveries at the end of the 19th century led to the to quantum mechanics, the discovery of a formulation of quantum mechanics, but also uh, the idea that body-mind do interact, and that mind, certain aspects of mind, can be creative, can have large influence on matter itself, which was not an acceptable thing under the Cartesian concept. But uh, the concept of, this, of uh, quantum mechanics and the fact that mind-matter does interact demonstrated that the Cartesian duality, so-called, was flawed. It isn't correct. We do know that um, as we look at things and study of them now within science, that we think of things with the mind and we create reality with our belief systems and with our mind. And uh, the fact that uh, healing, for example, uh, even in the Christian in the Christian faith or all of the religious faiths, Jesus was a healer. Healing is, is a proper mental discipline. And we do have people that are good healers today. And do we understand exactly how that works in science? No, we do not yet. But it is the fact that uh, as we create our reality, create our beliefs about reality, and test them and show that they're real, we do influence the direction of reality and create that as well. And that's the new, uh, new thinking that's come along with quantum mechanics in the 20th century. So all of this sort of... Uh came together uh, and and helped you with the founding of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Well, it caused me to because I realized at that point that whereas studies of consciousness were a no-no for almost 400 years, not acceptable uh, not topics within the science, that uh, it's had to be. That fundamentally the fact that we are alive, we are conscious, we're aware, and we perceive those are proper subjects for scientific study. And uh, some of the great thinkers like J. B., Dr. J.B. Ryan at Duke University and some of the others have been working, starting to do this. It was called parapsychology or paranormal phenomena mm -hmm. when it's very, very normal, it turns out. Uh, they've been working at it for quite a few years, but it had still not been a, accepted in academic science as a proper subject. And it was that's why it was called paranormal as opposed to normal. We now know it's quite normal. It's a quantum phenomenon, and we can give quite a few uh, examples as to uh, to illustrate that idea. <clears throat> For example, we call in the English language intuition our sixth sense. However, it should be called our first sense because it's rooted in the quantum world, 
which was around before our solar system was around, we were around, or anything else. It's a, it's a fundamental information structure in nature itself. And so it's that intuition, since it's rooted in the quantum world, should be called our first sense. So we can go on and on and on talking mm -hmm. like that. But the fact that the Cartesian duality for 400 years kept science from looking at these phenomena um, set us back quite a while. And we're just now, academic science is just now willing to and able to start to look at these areas after almost 100 years after quantum mechanics was starting to be formulated. And so so now with, uh, with the level of technology that... Uh you know, our, our society is at as far as sharing information and documenting things. That sort of brings us to why why we're here today and uh, Man in the Right Seat, which is uh, the new uh, film being made right now as we speak uh, with Craig, you at the helm here. Um, so if you want to speak a little bit on the film and just the genesis of it, how you uh, found out about Edgar's story and, and all that and just uh, how, how we're here today. Sure. Well, um, I'd be interested in the... Um the space program my whole life and that had been a longstanding interest and I and I had gotten to a point in life where I was very interested in the intersection between science and and mystical experience and science and um, unexplained aspects of the universe um, and I and I felt that 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 many of the things people attributed to um faith-based matters could be explained with, with science. And I just had a sense of that. And in, 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 in doing meditation and being exposed to some other things, it, it kind of opened up uh, possibilities to me. And I, and I came upon Edgar's story uh, shortly after the publication of his book, uh, Way of the Explorer, uh, in the mid-90s, and remained very interested in it for a very long time and, and contacted him uh, at first about six years ago where we, we started to shoot. Um, and then I went off and... and Another film came along, and I went off to do that. This this uh, Vidal Sassoon, the movie, which which was released last year, and it's just become a you know a very good time to get back into this. It's something that I've been wanting to do this entire time. And what interested me is that 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 you know Edgar's experience is so. I mean, he, he's alluded to the fact that many of the astronauts had this kind of experience, but I, I don't know of any who have expressed themselves um, in the way that Edgar has, and I don't know of any who have taken this experience and moved it to the conclusions that Edgar has. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there, there have been some interesting, um, Alan Bean, for example, another one of the Apollo astronauts um, dedicated his life to painting afterwards. And there were some examples of, of, of this experience in space having changed them. But with Edgar, he, he's been able to channel that change and channel that experience into something so much bigger. Um, you know, as he sat here today and talked about, sustainability and talked about the future of this planet and talked about where the universe comes from and talk I mean these are these are subjects about as large as you can you can wrap your brain around and discuss and occupy the minds of of the world's great thinkers and and you know it, it's it's amazing to me as a story that that um Edgar's story coming from um you know the cattle ranch in the southwest and uh being a naval test pilot and and going to MIT and studying astrophysics and then going through this experience space and coming out and and working with healers and working with shaman and working with psychics and there there are two sides of a coin that he manages to bring together with his own experience mm -hmm. and it's it's just incredibly fascinating it can go in so many places and touches so many things i mean there there isn't a person i've ever talked about with this film who doesn't have some connection to it in some way and 
it's 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 amazing to find a person whose story can encapsulate ideas as big as that. I mean, I think I completely agree with you that it it is so fascinating, and you're not going to find a person who is not fascinated by it simply because this story is sort of asking that grandiose, gigantic, impossible question of how and why are we here? How it's, did we get here? You yeah. know, I mean, it's just the largest of questions that it's the, it's the story asked. of us. It's the story yeah. of, of everyone and everything. And to find, you know, it's difficult to find a way to tell that story and not make it didactic and not make it, it hard to, to get your head around and your hands around. But because someone's life, you know, because Edgar's life encapsulates it so well, it's, it's, it's quite unique. So what are we doing here today? We have an event going on yeah. at the film center. Uh, speak, speak a little bit about that. Well, Edgar's been, been kind enough to come up from Florida for, for a few days and join us. And uh, the Jacob Byrne Center has been, been very gracious to offer this event tonight. The Vidal Sassoon, the movie, had screened here just about a year ago, almost to the day. Um, and there was a wonderful Q&A with Janet Maslin afterwards. And uh, after that experience, Steve Apcon offered us um, an opportunity to work with the Film Center to be a fiscal sponsorship project of the Film Center, which has just been great and opened many doors, including the possibility of putting together an event like this. So uh, we have, we have of course, Edgar here tonight. And we have the... the um, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson from the Hayden Planetarium coming up, mm -hmm. um, and and Neil will be interviewing Edgar on stage. Uh, we'll be showing um, uh, about a fifteen minute look at the the work in progress of this film, Man in the Right Seat. And I think Neil's going to be talking to Edgar about many of the issues we just talked about tonight, about his his NASA experience and what's and and after. And as a scientist himself. Um, I'm really looking forward to how they're going to interact and, and, and what that's going to be. And we're going to be filming that whole experience, and it should be a part of the film as well. And we're, uh, we're also doing a few minutes of For All Mankind. Is that still happening? Some clips yes. of that? Um, Edgar, have you seen the film For All Mankind? I believe so. It, uh, I mean, it, it, it pales in comparison to what you've seen with your own eyes, but uh, it is, uh, it's, it's, it's a documentary comprised of nothing but uh, uh, the footage, footage you got shot, shot by. Yeah, yeah. Footage shot by astronauts, um, mm -hmm. and seeing it uh, on the on the big screen is is quite quite magical. Yeah, sure. um, again, nothing nothing compared to what you've been so so blessed to see yourself and you and only a few dozen other uh, men and women. So uh, I just want to thank you both for coming here. Uh, it's been incredibly fascinating. Craig, best of luck with the rest thank of the you, documentary. Thanks for having us, uh, Edgar. It was very nice talking to you and meeting with you as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was astronaut Edgar Mitchell and filmmaker Craig Tepper. Again, for more information about Man in the Right Seat, be sure to visit maninthewrightseat.com. And that's going to about do it for another episode of JBFC Podcast. For more episodes and more information about the show, please be sure to visit our website, www.podcast.burnsfilmcenter.org. For more ticketing information, event information, volunteer information, or education information, please be sure to visit our website, www.burnsfilmcenter.org. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can write to me at podcast at burnsfilmcenter.org. Be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. It's the easiest way to get updates on your computer whenever a new episode is posted. And if you subscribe to the show there, please be sure to rate and review. It would greatly help the exposure of the show, and we would certainly appreciate it. So until next time, I'm Andrew Jupin, and this has been another episode of JBFC Podcast.